today on Fuzzy Logic, our very special St. Patrick's Day edition. We're going to be talking about Irish scientists, the science of the colour green, and a whole lot more coming up right here today on your Science on a Sunday. Morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic on this March 17th. A happy St. Patrick's Day to you, and thanks very much to Irish Voice for the show beforehand. Uh, wonderful sharing of uh, some St. Patrick's Day news and some St. Patty's Day music as well. Uh, and I hope uh, your St. Patty's Day is treating you well so far. I thought seeing it as is March 17th, I'd focus uh, to start with on some of the uh, Irish science that's been uh, going on in the world, in the history and in more recent times too. Uh, So that's what we're going to do. My name's Broderick and it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning as we do change from the world of Ireland into the world of science. And so, look, to kick it all off, I thought let's take a look at some of the famous Irish scientists out there. And uh, the first person who came up when I was searching was uh, Irish scientist Vincent Barry, who had a pretty huge effect on the world and is credited having saved the lives of more than 15 million people after he developed a cure for leprosy. That's right. Leprosy plagued mankind for thousands of years. We hear about lepers from historically through the Bible and in many other places. And uh, it's only uh, now in recent times that we're actually approaching the eradication of this horrible, horrible uh, skin disease uh, that can not only uh, be quite disfiguring for people, but can also uh, kill and, uh, and changes people's lives. Uh, so Dr Barry uh, was born in Cork in 1908, uh, studied at University College Dublin, uh, where he gained his first class honours in organic chemistry. And uh, after he left university, he worked at University College Galway for 10 years as an assistant to Professor Thomas Dillon, before eventually moving back to Dublin in 1943, where he took a job with the Medical Research Council investigating chemotherapy or chemical treatments of tuberculosis. Now, tuberculosis or TB, that was a common disease back in the 1940s. And so uh, the research around that uh, became very important. And during his time at the Medical Research Council, uh, uh, tuberculosis, TB, became much more manageable. And so then uh, Barry turned his attention to leprosy. And he built on the work of Norwegian scientist Gerhard Hansen uh, because in the 1870s, Hansen had discovered that leprosy was actually caused by bacteria and not hereditary, as people thought at the time. And that's quite interesting. If we actually take a look at the causes of um, leprosy, it's it's quite different to see that it is actually that bacterial uh, infection that causes it here. Uh, So leprosy, also known as Hansen's disease, is... um, is uh, something that's quite interesting indeed. And so it's contagious, uh, but it's caused by a bacterium called Mycobacterium leprae, which is a rod-shaped bacterium there. And uh, the primary symptoms of leprosy, lesions on the skin and a lack of sensation in the nervous system. So that's kind of what we know of leprosy. I think we have that... uh, 
stereotype from cartoons and that sort of thing that it's things dropping off but actually no it's not so much things dropping off but it's those lesions on the skin and the lack of sensation that then causes uh, pain uh, in in joints and that sort of thing where um, people don't actually feel it uh, leprosy also attacks cells within the immune and nervous systems uh, causing physical effects on the limbs as well as the senses the interesting thing though even though it does have a huge reputation of um being quite contagious and people being isolated in leper colonies, leprosy isn't actually particularly contagious. In fact, around 95% of the world's population is naturally immune and even after prolonged exposure won't pick up the disease. Um, so it's quite quite amazing that we don't really understand this disease because there's still a huge stigma of it. Um, you know, there's still leper colonies in India, China, some African countries as well. But there's no medical reason for patients to be removed from society. In fact, the contagious, the contagiousness, is that a word? The, the high level of contagion is actually, um, type, uh, is actually quite difficult to uh, contract from other people. Um, some families are more prone than others, um, suggesting genetic susceptibility. And if you're already immunocompromised, then it is uh, more likely to catch it. But uh, but yeah, but now after work from the World Health Organization, uh, they are starting to bring leprosy under control. And that's through the work of um, Vincent Barry, the Irish scientist there, who realised that uh, the symptoms, though very different in uh, TB and leprosy, actually have the same cause, and that's this bacterium that acts. And so Barry, uh, back in the... Uh, 1940s and 50s started to apply his research that he'd been doing on TB and stopping the bacteria in TB to stopping the bacteria in leprosy. And he actually travelled to India and Zimbabwe to visit leper colonies and spoke to leprosy officials at the Mission to Lepers, uh, which was founded by a fellow Irishman, uh, Wellesley Bailey, back in the 1870s. And uh, he knew, Barry knew at this point, that he was close to finding a cure and meeting these lepers at the colony actually fueled his desire to help them. Uh, so back in Dublin, in a laboratory at Trinity College, he led a team of scientists there who synthesised a compound called uh, B6C3, or clofazamine. And clofazamine eventually became part of a multi-drug treatment for leprosy sufferers. And so uh, the World Health Organization actually made clofazamine a mandatory part of the multi-drug treatment of leprosy in 1981, unfortunately six years after Barry's death. Uh, but the effect that his work has had is, is still going on today. And so this multi-drug treatment of clofazamine with dapsone and rifampicin uh, means that people suffering severe leprosy can now be completely cured after a two-year course of the drug. And people with a milder form only need a six-month course. So that's suddenly this lifelong suffering is... Uh, this disease is being eradicated thanks to the work of Irish scientist Vincent Barry. So some amazing stuff there. And in fact, now since the drug's been introduced, leprosy cases across the world have plummeted. And realistically, uh, with efforts from the World Health Organization, we can expect the disease to be almost eradicated within the next 20 to 30 years, which is amazing um, to think. So that research there changing from TB to leprosy to help save people.
Let's move on to another Irish scientist. This one's a bit, uh, bit more of an interesting, as well, a bit more of a crazy, mad scientist here. Reverend Nicholas Callan, uh, born 1799 and died in 1864, and he was known as one of Ireland's great inventors, uh, described as the Frankenstein of electricity, which starts to make me worried when you start giving someone the nickname of Frankenstein. Uh, he was actually famous for building powerful batteries in his lab at uh, Maynooth University. He once joined 577 battery cells together using 136 litres of acid, at the time making it the world's largest battery. Uh, But he made his most significant discovery in 1836, the induction coil. Inducing current there. Uh, And, you know, the Reverend was known for zapping large birds with the induction coil and once electrocuted a future Archbishop of Dublin and knocked him unconscious. So, you know, there's nothing to, something to be said about the old mad scientist, isn't there? Um, there's a reason stereotypes exist sometimes, and it's people like uh, Reverend Nicholas Callan there inducing current and uh, zapping people as well. All right, let's, let's move on to a, a bit more serious sides uh, from uh, these Irish scientists. And uh, the next scientist I have is John Jolie. Born back in 1857, he was a distinctive man. Sported a bushy moustache, wore pince-nez perched on his nose and uh, highly popular with his students and very generous to colleagues with his time and expertise. Uh, But early on in his career, he was a physicist, but he also became regarded as an inventor. Uh, He first developed uh, the steam calorimeter, uh, which allowed for the measurement of the specific heat of minerals. And this piece of equipment actually later played an important role in developing the kinetic theory of gases. So again, this early science, it's often little things building on other things. um, And that's what Jolie was adding here. Uh, He focused on a wide range of subjects, though, outside his immediate academic discipline. Uh, And together with his lifelong friend, botanist Henry Horatio Dixon, he actually explained the mechanism of uh, the ascent of sap, uh, which sounds like a good band name, doesn't it? Ascent of sap. Uh, But basically, the transportation of water in plants. Uh, Jolie and Dixon showed that this was driven by a pressure gradient set up in plant vessels uh, through the loss of water from the surface of the leaves by transpiration. So basically, as uh, water is lost in plants out through the leaves... uh, there's a difference in uh, in the gradient throughout the plant, and so it draws more water up from the ground into the leaves where it loses again. It keeps that water flowing through the plant. So a pretty uh, important discovery there. In the late 1890s, Jolie uh, invented a system of colour photography, uh, which was called the Dublin Method for a while, or also the Jolie Method, uh, and that produced colour images by lining up glass plates marked with thin lines of the primary colours with a negative. Uh, It's quite an interesting technique, and many of his images of still life... uh, compositions of plants, uh, but there's also a famous image of a stuffed parrot, uh, a deceased parrot... Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, And uh, he actually tried to establish his own business from this on uh, Brunswick Street, which is now Pierce Street in uh, Dublin, uh, to exploit his invention. But unfortunately it failed, uh, as at that time it was still quite difficult to produce colour prints from his glass slides. It wasn't until the advent of digital methods, uh, though, that Jolie's invention was basically the only scheme for colour photography. So even though it was difficult, it was the only thing that they had on offer. 
So, interestingly, after his, uh, he was appointed a professor in 1897, he changed his uh, way of thinking again and went to uh, geological matters, uh, interestingly. So into the world of rocks, although he wasn't really regarded as a field geologist because he never drew a geological map or accumulated large collections of rocks through his own collecting. But he is remembered in geological circles for his uh, research into geochronology, uh, so the ageing of rocks, and the subject of geodynamics and tectonics, so the rocks moving about our planet and uh, around Earth, that is, and... Towards the end of the 19th century, interestingly, uh, Lord Kelvin, who at the time was William Thompson, argued that the Earth was only between 24 and 40 million years old. However, in 1899, uh, Jolie actually published a paper uh, which is quite influential in scientific transactions of the Royal Dublin Society in which uh, he proposed that the age of the Earth was actually 100 million years old. And that basically dissolved uh, Lord Kelvin's theories entirely at that point in time that he was showing that the Earth was much older. Uh, now we know, of course, that the Earth is about four and a half billion years old, so much, much older than the uh, 100 million they were proposing at the time, but they were proposing it on the evidence that they could draw uh, back in 1899. Jolie actually derived his... Uh, global time span from an estimate of the volume of sodium in the oceans uh, that he divided by the rate at which it was carried into oceans by rivers. Uh, so just looking at the movement of sodium throughout the water, hardly surprising because he was also a notable yachtsman uh, and a commissioner for Irish lights uh, for whom he took, undertook an annual inspection of lighthouses. Um, yeah, amazing man. We've just gone through a huge range of uh, scientific areas that he researched in. And now I'm going to tell you too that he was also a pioneer in the field of radioactivity and its connections to geology. In 1907, he demonstrated that uh, halos found in uh, biotite in some granites were actually formed as a result of the decay of radioactive zircon crystals. And uh, he established the Irish Radium Institute in 1914 that exploited the medical advantages of radium. So a hugely brilliant scientist, uh, Jolie, uh, died in Dublin on 8th December 1933 and buried in Mount Jerome Cemetery. Uh, 40 years later, he actually has a crater on Mars named for him as well, um, which is uh, appropriate uh, for him as his uh, geological science was studied there too. So amazing stuff indeed uh, by the, the science there from him. Uh, Jolie, just beautiful work and on across a range of different areas. Uh, but we do have a few more Irish scientists that I want to explore, a couple of whom have won Nobel Prizes. Uh, so let's start with the earlier winner of the two, which is uh, Ernest Walton, uh, Irish physicist, Nobel laureate, uh, known for his work with John Cockroft and the atom-smashing experiments they did at Cambridge University in the 1930s and so actually became the first person in history to split the atom. That's right. Uh, Ernest Walton was born in Abbeyside, uh, Dungarvan, uh, to a Methodist minister and father. Uh, and uh, he had some interesting stuff there. But uh, during he uh, 
Oh, I've just lost my place here. There we go. Studied at Trinity College Dublin and then moved to Trinity College Cambridge, where he was under the supervision of Sir Ernest Rutherford. Uh, Rutherford, of course, a fantastic scientist in his own right, a uh, New Zealand-born British physicist known as the father of nuclear physics. Uh and in fact, at the time, they were in the Cavendish Laboratory where there were four Nobel Prize laureates on the staff of the Cavendish Lab and a further five were to emerge, including uh, John Cockcroft and Walton himself. So quite an amazing place to be when you think about all these Nobel Prizes just hanging about. It's like the ultimate uh, footy team, isn't it? Just full of Brownlow medalists or something like that and a lab full of Nobel Prize winners. Um, so Walton and Cockcroft uh, won their Nobel Prize for the splitting of the atom, and they did that during the early 1930s when they collaborated to build an apparatus that split the nuclei of lithium atoms by bombarding them with a stream, a stream of protons accelerated inside a high-voltage tube. That was 700 kilovolts in there. When they split the lithium atoms, they formed uh, helium nuclei. Uh, so going from lithium, which has uh, three um, hydrogen, helium, lithium, yep, three, three protons in its uh, uh, the centre of the atom. What's that called? Nucleus. There we go. My science is going well this morning. Three, three protons in the nucleus, down to two uh, when we created the helium nuclei. And so uh, this was experimental verification of theories about atomic structure uh, that had been proposed earlier by Rutherford himself, uh, along with George Gamo and others. And uh, so the successful apparatus, this particle accelerator, now known as the Cockroft-Walton generator, helped to usher in an era of particle-based experiment, uh, experimental nuclear physics. And so it was this research that won them the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1951. Uh, a few years after they actually did it in the early 1930s. So quite amazing stuff there from Ernest Walton. And uh, while the Irish have won a few Nobel Prizes in other areas, including uh, literature, the other Nobel Prize winner we have is uh, in the sciences is William Cecil Campbell, who's an Amer Irish-American uh, biologist and parasitologist who uh, discovered a no novel therapy against infection by roundworms uh, and was jointly awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2015. So yeah, and that was for discovering the class of drugs called avamectins, whose uh, derivatives have extraordinary e efficacy in treating river blindness and uh, other parasitic diseases affecting animals and humans. So there you go. There's one more scientist that I want to share with you from uh, the Irish scientist, but before I get to that, uh, I think I'm going to have a short break and play a little bit of music. It ain't easy being green, although I think today of all days of the year is probably the easiest day to be green because it is St. Patrick's Day today. Broderick here on Fuzzy Logic, your science for a Sunday, but today we're doing a bit of Irish science because why not? It's uh, only St. Patrick's Day once a year, March 17th, so I've been focusing on some Irish scientists and, uh, well, I... That song was all about being green, and I want to get to being green in a moment. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to talk about uh, being blue. Uh, well, in fact, the, the sky being blue, uh, because Irish scientist John Tyndall was probably the first person to explain why the sky is blue. 
along with that, he was the first person to suggest the greenhouse effect and built a precursor of the fibre optic cable and also helped prove germ theory or how disease spreads. So, you know, a busy man uh, when he was a scientist. Uh, Born in the 19th century, John Tyndall was a man of science, physics professor, mathematician, geologist, atmospheric scientist, public lecturer and mountaineer as well. Uh, throughout the course of his life, he expressed his thoughts in a manner none had seen or heard before, painting mental pictures for his audience, communicating his work and helping to create a popular knowledge of uh, physical science that had not previously existed. Uh, his work on the radiative properties of gases, as well as his work with other top scientists, opened up new fields of science and laid the groundwork for future scientific enterprises. Um, so in January 1859, uh, Tyndall was studying the radiative properties of various gases, uh, so looking at uh, what they emit and that sort of thing. And part of his experimentation, he actually made a uh, ratio spectrophotometer, uh, so spectrophotometer, uh, photo is light, uh, spectrum is the wavelength, so measuring the wavelengths and the intensities of light. And he used that to measure the absorptive powers of gases such as water vapour. So working out what those gases are actually absorbing in terms of light, in terms of energy. Uh, and he looked at water vapour, uh, carbon dioxide, which was called carbonic acid at the time, uh, ozone and other hydrocarbons. And so among these discoveries... Uh, were the differences that he found in the abilities of these uh, gases, which appear perfectly colourless and invisible, uh, to absorb and transmit uh, radiant heat. Uh, so this is a, a quite a new discovery that um, these gases, uh, while we can't see them, while they don't absorb visible light, they do absorb a lot of the other spectrum and, and absorb that heat. And uh, so he noted that oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, almost transparent to radiant heat, while other gases like carbon dioxide are quite opaque. And it's this sort of knowledge that forms our understanding of the greenhouse effect and those sorts of things that we see around us. He did see that water vapour, carbon dioxide and ozone are the best absorbers of heat radiation. And uh, that even in small quantities, these gases uh, absorb much more strongly than the atmosphere itself because most of our atmosphere is, of course, nitrogen and oxygen. And uh, so he actually concluded, and I don't know if you folks know this, but uh, the greenhouse gas that's the strongest absorber of um, radiant heat, do you know what it is? It's not carbon dioxide, it's not carbon monoxide, it's actually water vapour. That's right, water vapour um, has a huge, uh, uh, can absorb uh, radiant heat quite greatly and, and has an important role in controlling Earth's surface temperature. And so he said, uh, he actually said at the time, Tyndall said, without water vapour, the Earth's surface would be held fast in the iron grip of frost. Uh, and he did later speculate how fluctuations in water vapour and carbon dioxide could be related to climate change. So you can see, this is back in the 1850s, 1860s, very early thoughts around climate change right there. He also related his radiation studies to minimum nighttime temperatures and the formation of dew, correctly noting that dew and frost are actually caused by loss of heat uh, through uh, radiative processes, through the emission of radiation, of heat, uh, he even considered London as a, a city as a heat island, uh, meaning that the city is warmer than its surrounding areas. And we do know that now, too, that CBDs are often heat islands in there. And, uh, and in amongst all this, he also described why the sky is blue. Why is it? 
Well, it's because dust in the air scatters most of the short wavelength blue light. Um, clusters of molecules also contribute to the effect. Uh, so it's it's a really handy thing to know because um, if we look at the light spectrum from red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, um, from uh, the red uh, light actually has the longest wavelength, blue, indigo, violet has the shorter wavelengths. And so uh, the reason we see the sky as blue is because as the light is transmitted down to us from the sun, we have white light, which is a mix of all those colours. Uh, but the longer wavelengths of red, orange, yellow, green get uh, uh, are able to pass through the atmosphere uh, pretty well. Uh, they're scattered a little bit, but those longer wavelengths can pass through, whereas the short wavelength of blue... Um, um, more likely hits the dust in the air, hits the atmosphere and is scattered around. So we see the blue sky, um, which is quite interesting indeed. You can test this out for yourself actually at home uh, and not by going outside and looking up at the sky, uh, but by doing your own experiment. That's right. There's nothing like encouraging an experiment on the radio, is there? This one's all right. It's not, uh, not going to be as uh, strange as the Reverend Nicholas Callan's experiments that we were talking about earlier, where he's knocking out birds and uh, future archbishops and that sort of thing. Uh, no, uh, this experiment just needs milk uh, container and a torch uh, what you need to do is uh, get yourself a uh, rectangular container a uh, long rectangle is going to work better it needs to be clear on the sides and uh, you can do this a couple of ways you can try it with uh, with milk or milk powder uh, but both both will work pretty well and uh, pour the milk into the container uh, such that you have it um, you know, a couple of centimetres in depth. And uh, then what you do is you shine your torch through it long ways and you'll see that as the light passes through, uh, when it comes out the other end, that white light will appear blue. Uh, because what's happening in there is that the uh, red, orange, yellow, green that's also in there is being scattered through the milk because milk is basically water with a whole bunch of particles in it, which is kind of like our atmosphere. Uh, and so those particles in the milk scatter the light and we end up seeing blue light coming out the end. Uh, now, it's a very faint effect, so don't expect to see a, a brilliant blue light, but what you'll see as you pass it through is that um, that, that blue light uh, does uh, come out the other end. So there you go. Now, hold on, hold on. As I say that, I'm just correcting myself here because I think I've got this wrong. Because what's going to happen, the light's going to be scattered, isn't it? That's right. The light's going to be scattered. We're going to see a range of colours come through. And I'm just thinking back to when I've done this experiment myself with uh, individual LEDs, red, green and uh blue LEDs. Now what happens, I've, I've told you a complete lie here, folks, because I uh, went on uh, my memory rather than thinking about what's actually happening in this science. Uh, and so what does happen is you don't see blue light at, out the end because the blue light's going to be scattered throughout the milk, isn't it? The blue light with the smaller wavelength is more likely to be scattered. So you see blue on the side of the container because the blue light gets scattered there. But what's coming out the end of that uh, that white light? Well, if the blue light's been taken out, you're going to see the mixture of the red and the green light. That's what you're going to see right there. And... Um, and in fact, uh, I'm going to put up a photo that I did of this experiment um, 
because it uh, it shows it quite fantastically, shining a red, a green, and a uh, blue light into the. Um, let me just duplicate this here. Uh, a red, a green, and blue light into a milky solution, and uh, you can see right there that um, that when you do that, it um, it takes it and brings it uh, to be, uh, so it scatters the blue light and the red light passes all the way through and the green light kind of ends up somewhere in the middle. So look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find that one again. I'm gonna post it up on our Facebook page so you folks can see this experiment and you know that while I got my science wrong initially, uh, I can correct myself and I'm happy to admit that, um, that occasionally I make mistakes. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I'm not so good at expressing uh, the science today as John Tyndall was, uh, who did an amazing job uh, showcasing the, the science that he did um, and showing the importance of it to everyone in everyday life. All right, time for my recovery now. I stuffed up on uh, talking about why the sky is blue and that experiment, but I can at least tell you about why things are green. Green, of course, a fantastic colour to choose today, being St. Patrick's Day. So let's look at the history of the colour green. Um, well, the word green is actually closely related to, the, in the Old English, to the verb growin, to grow. Uh, growin, green, yeah, they sound pretty close, don't they? The green is traditionally the colour of life. You know, that's what we see. The Chinese associate green with the female yin. Uh, Islam venerates the colour green, expecting paradise to be full of lush vegetation. Uh, green is associated with rebirth, fertility, um, all that sort of thing. And that's because, you know, green plants uh, are the most common thing. And why are they green? Well, it's because they contain a pigment called chlorophyll. Chlorophyll observes certain wavelengths of light uh, within the visible spectrum. And uh, you can see that in detail in uh, the absorption spectra of chlorophyll. Uh, we were talking about absorbing light before. Chlorophyll absorbs light in the red and the blue regions of visible light, but doesn't absorb green. So that light's reflected and it makes all our plants appear green. And uh, so chlorophyll is found in the chloroplasts of plants. Uh, various types of chlorophyll exist, uh, but plants contain chlorophyll A and B, and uh, they're pretty similar versions of that compound. Um, with uh, It's a sort of a compound that uh, consists of a central metal ion, in this case magnesium, uh, bounded to large organic molecules composed of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen. And uh, this arrangement um, kind of, uh, yeah, just helps uh, absorb that light and uh, it gives you the energy that you need. So the role of uh, chlorophyll is uh, important in nature uh, because it, uh, it's fundamentally useful. It channels the energy of sunlight into chemical energy and helps uh, convert it through the process of photosynthesis. So in photosynthesis, chlorophyll absorbs that energy from sunlight to transform carbon dioxide and water into carbohydrates and, hydro and oxygen, rather. So in this case, uh, generally glucose is the sugar that's produced. So basically converting sunlight into oxygen and food that can be utilised by plants. Uh, and so that's where the plants taking into carbon dioxide and producing oxygen 
is uh, is hugely important to us as humans. Uh, but of course, plants converting uh, and creating glucose, those sugars there, um, is also hugely important in the food chain uh, to the animals that eat them, including us as humans as well. Uh, so that's kind of the amazing thing when you think about that photosynthesis reaction. Uh, that's where all the plant mass and and all that side of things, the side of things comes from is uh, the um, the ability to create glucose from uh, the carbon dioxide and the water in the air. Uh, so kind of amazing stuff uh, right there that we can see from this uh, from this reaction through chlorophyll. Uh, chlorophyll can also be used as a commercial uh, pigment as well for a commercial green colour, uh, used in foods, toothpaste, soaps, cosmetics, um, and commercial pigments with similar structures to chlorophyll have been used to produce a range of colours. Uh, so quite an interesting compound indeed um, that chlorophyll uh, sees. Um, but uh, it's not the only way we can make green. Uh, there are other chemicals that we can use to create green. And uh, surprisingly, uh, there is a, a version of poisonous green that's uh, played a role in history. Uh, and that is the deadly hue Shields green, S-C-H-E-E-L-E. Uh, Shields green, named after the Swedish chemist Carl Wilhelm Scheele. Uh, he introduced the colour to the art world back in 1775. And this uh, compound, uh, well, I'm going to tell you, the uh, it's a cupric hydrogen arsenite, also known as copper arsenite or ar acidic copper arsenite. It's got a copper molecule, hydrogen and arsenic molecule and three oxygens in there. And... Uh, it, uh, it did uh, connect uh, that uh, toxic arsenic in there and made this paint kind of poisonous. Uh, and in fact, this paint is blamed for uh, Napoleon's death. Uh, during Napoleon's exile in St. Helena, he resided in a house in which the rooms were painted bright green, his favourite colour, uh, but that may have been the cause of his death because uh, uh, this arsenic exposure from the uh, the paint on the walls uh, gave him an increased risk of uh, gastric cancers or cancers in his stomach and uh, that's the, generally thought to be how he died. Um, analysis of samples of his hair did reveal significant amounts of arsenic and as St Helena has a rather damp climate it's also thought that uh, it's likely that fungus grew on the walls. That being said though just to pro provide the counterpoint, it has also been suggested that the presence of high levels of arsenic in his body might actually be due to attempts at preserving his body. So maybe not uh, the best way to determine the cause of death, uh, but there you go. So that uh, green, Napoleon's favourite colour, but may have contributed to his death. Uh, so uh, later on... Um, uh, scientists replace uh, this version of green with a, a new colour green, uh, which was known as Paris green and used by many Impressionist artists. Uh, but this particular shade of green was also toxic uh, and for many is considered responsible for Cezanne's diabetes, Claude Monet's blindness. So not surprisingly, in the 1960s, this colour green was also banned out there. So look, Green, great colour, rebirth, life, all uh, all sorts of um, things in the natural world. But when we try and recreate it ourselves, uh, not quite as healthy for us. So there you go. All right. I'm going to continue in the world of colour and we might make our way out of the Irish world, but into the world of colour because colour is a really interesting thing in general. Uh, but before I do that, let's have a song. Thank you. 
Ben Folds 5 there with Sky High. Time is 11.45 and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XXFM 98.3. This is people-powered radio, community radio in Canberra. We're also streaming online at 2XXFM.org.au. And if you want to follow Fuzzy Logic, we're all over Facebook and Twitter, so check us out on there. My name is Broderick and it's a pleasure to have you with us today. We started off the show talking about some Irish scientists and then explored the science of the colour green. But I thought I'd continue on to finish off the show with a little bit of an exploration of colour. And uh, we might even get to a special Canberra event that happened yesterday and explore the science behind that. So let's jump into the world of colour, though, because we've already talked about the colour green. uh, But how many colours are actually out there? Well, in a rainbow, we've got seven colours, Roy G. Biv. Packet of textures, about 24. Paint manufacturers make almost 1,500 colours. And uh, how many colours actually exist from all of this? Well, our eyes can detect about 10 million different colours. But in reality, there's almost an infinite, infinite number of colours there. It just depends on how we're detecting them. So what is colour? Where does it come from? Well, it's a form of light, uh, and any light that we can see is, uh, we call it visible light, and it makes up all the colours that we can see. Uh, and we talked about wavelengths of light before. Uh, the wavelengths of light range from 400 to 700 nanometers. Uh, so nanometer being one billionth of a metre, um, which is pretty tiny. You know, one of your hairs is about 100,000 nanometers. So 400 to 700 nanometers is... Um, you know, a, a small fraction of a hair width across. Uh, red has got the longest wavelength at about 700 nanometers and violet the shortest at 400 nanometers. So blue's down that end with the violet and that's why we're talking about blue light being scattered earlier uh, to see the clouds. And uh, colours work in different ways. Uh, We can make different colours from a range of sources, Uh, but basically we're making things that reflect or absorb light in different ways so we can see those wavelengths. Uh, Sometimes we do it using natural products, um, so like ochre. Ochre was one of the first materials used to make different colours thousands, thousands of years ago. Aboriginal Australians used ochre to make coloured paints for painting rock walls and their bodies. And it's generally made from ground up clay. And the colour in this case comes from iron compounds in the soil. Interestingly, to make the ochre powder into a liquid paint, Indigenous Australians would use a binder with the ochre, and those binders were often made from natural products such as bush honey, egg yolks or kangaroo blood. Uh, Pen ink comes in a range of different colours with lots of dyes and pigments. Uh, The first inks, though, were mainly black, uh, and so they actually mixed uh, tar or burnt bones in with a binder of their own uh, back in India uh, in the 4th century to make those colours. Uh, Now we can create chemicals to to do colours ourselves, to create pigments or dyes, Um, and sometimes uh, they use uh, the chemical... Uh, arrangement to absorb things but sometimes it's also the metal involved um, and that sort of thing and that brings me to the event that happened in Canberra last night uh, which was a skyfire skyfire because fireworks are an amazing sight uh, lighting up the dark skies first fireworks actually came about uh, by the Chinese in the 12th century and they were there to help scare away evil spirits But by the 19th century, we finally worked out how to create coloured fireworks. 
And so the colours we see in fireworks actually come from a wide variety of metal compounds, uh, particularly metal salts. Uh, you know, salts, you know, normally conjures up that table salt that you see, uh, salt and pepper, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, salt is actually uh, refers to any compound that contains a not metal and non-metal atom, and they're ionically bonded together. So table salt is sodium chloride. Sodium is the metal component. Non-metal component is the chloride in there. And... Uh, it's those metals in there that give us the colour. Uh, so sodium chloride, if, uh, if we burn it in the right way, can actually give us a yellow flame. Um, and uh, that's why sodium lamps, uh, which you might see in some cities like Adelaide, uh, have the very yellow light uh, in their street lights because there's sodium lamps in there. So the colours of uh, fireworks come from those uh, metal compounds. Uh, of course, the most important part of the firework is, of course, the gunpowder or black powder, as it's known. Um, and that's, uh, that's made from a range of things. Um, but uh, but the, uh, the part that we want is that colour in there from those metal compounds. Um, Interestingly, gunpowder, though, uh, was discovered by Chinese alchemists who were actually more concerned with uh, discovering the elixir of life when they were, they were looking at it than blowing things up. Uh, but they found that a combination of honey, sulfur and uh, saltpeter or potassium nitrate would suddenly erupt into flame upon heating. Um, so that was a quite an interesting discovery. And eventually the combination of sulfur and potassium nitrate was later joined by charcoal in place of honey uh, to create that black gunpowder that we now know. And uh, if you mix it in the right ratio, uh, which is, uh, what is it, 75 parts of um, saltpeter, 15 parts charcoal, 10 parts sulfur, uh, that's modern black powder or gunpowder. And that ratio that I just mentioned has actually remained unchanged since around 1781. So we've known how to blow things up quite well for a while. Uh, it actually takes place through a range of reactions. Uh, and so it's quite a complicated thing uh, that happens in there. Um, but, uh, but we want to talk about the uh, colour component in there. And it's, uh, it's those uh, different metals in there that create our uh, colour component. Uh, so what do they do with those metal powders? Well, the stars contained within the rocket body of the firework have those metal powders or salts in them, uh, and they're often coated in gunpowder to aid ignition. And the heat given off by the gunpowder uh, combusting or setting on fire causes electrons in the metal atoms to be excited to higher energy levels. Um, and so those excited states, when they get excited, it becomes unstable and the electron quickly returns to its original energy or ground state. So we give it a bunch of energy, it uh, gets excited, doesn't like that energy, and so it drops back down again to its normal state and that excess energy that it got given from the initial heat uh, is actually emitted as light. And so uh, that light comes out and uh, different metals have different energy gaps for the electrons uh, that get excited. And so uh, the different energies that come out in the form of light uh, mean we actually produce light of different wavelengths, okay? Because the wavelength of light uh, is related to its energy. Um, and so we heard earlier too that the wavelength of light gives us color. So different energies, different wavelengths gives us different colors. And uh, there's a range of um, colours that we see uh, through that, through different metals. And if I have a look here in, uh, in my notes, I'm sure I can find um, the, uh, 
the color uh, compounds that correspond. Uh, just got to pull up the right document here. But I talked about earlier that sodium um, was the uh, color that comes through um, to give us uh, yellow. And no, I don't seem to be able to pull it up right now. That's all right. We're going to move on uh, to a different part of the firework instead. Uh, and maybe I'll be able to pull that up later for us. But there are a huge um, range of metal compounds that we can include in there to give us different forms of light. Um, the other thing you can do, and I tried this at uh, Harry Potter Potter, Harry Potter Party recently, is you can soak uh, wood, or in our case, we use pine cones um, with the metal salts. Uh, so soak them in a solution of metal salts and create different colors so we use some uh, copper salts uh, soaked pine cones in a, in a campfire and uh, they gave us some green flames in there uh, we used some uh, sodium salts to give us yellower flames and uh, we had some red salts red flame in there too I can't remember which salts we use for those so there's a range of ways you can do it but yeah in in uh, fireworks it's the metal salts coated in gunpowder that uh, that uh, creates that uh, um, colour that we see. Uh, but, of course, the other side of uh, fireworks is uh, the noises that they make too. And uh, the bangs uh, start with uh, come from that gunpowder. Uh, so the bangs that we hear, uh, the gunpowder, if it's suitably compacted, confined, it's going to give a bang. Um, but, uh, but that's just a simple bang. Uh, but there's also special uh, combinations that we have to create special noises when we do have the fireworks. Uh, in fact, there's a specific explosive uh, mixture. Uh, contains three main components, an oxidizer, such as potassium chlorate, uh, sulfur, uh, and metal pieces, commonly aluminium. And these compositions are known as flash and sound compositions for obvious reasons. Uh, so the oxidizer in there provides the oxygen as it decomposes. Uh, so more oxygen means better flame, better bang. Metal acts as the fuel to create a rapid explosive reaction. And uh, these compositions are quite dangerous. You know, those made with potassium chlorate as the oxidizer have low ignition temperatures, so as low as 200 degrees. And... Uh, and uh, so usually created remotely away from people, that sort of thing. The other uh, sound effect that you might have heard at Skyfire last night in the fireworks is the fizzling, crackling sound. And uh, these fireworks actually use a slightly different composition to achieve that effect. Originally, uh, they used lead tetroxide uh, as the compound in this composition, but uh, due to the toxicity of lead compounds, nowadays it's more like uh, bismuth trioxide or bismuth subcarbonate uh, that are used instead. And these uh, compounds are mixed with an alloy of aluminium and magnesium called magnalium, and uh, that uh, th and is put into granules. And the rapid com combustion of these granules leads to the crackling effect. Uh, so it's uh, been suggested that the process for this is actually that the magnesium in the alloy burns first uh, in the oxygen released uh, by the decomposition of the bismuth oxide uh, before the aluminium then burns. Um, and, uh, and it creates that crackling sound. It's actually known in the pyrotechnics industry as uh, dragon's eggs. Uh, so it's quite a, quite a great name for it. And then, of course, the final sound that we often hear with fireworks uh, displays are the screeching whistles as they rise up into the sky. And that's uh, because of some of the organic compounds that are used um, 
So uh, to, in this process, uh, salts of shock-sensitive compounds like picric acid were previously used, uh, but now we use gallic acid, salicylic acid, benzoic acid. These acids uh, are mixed with oxidizers, tightly packed in the firework tube, and when they burn, uh, they produce small explosions which cause pressure changes in the gas being ejected by the burning mixture. And this creates a, a standing wave in the tube of the firework, uh, so as the distance of the end of the tube and the burning mixture increases, uh, so does the wavelength of the uh, the vibrations coming out, producing that uh, characteristic descending whistle sound. So there you go. Some amazing science there behind uh, fireworks and what's going on indeed uh, from all that. So some great stuff. And you might have noticed uh, a bunch of that last night. Um, and in fact, you might have even noticed uh, the um, the interesting barge explosion that happened as well. Well, that was just uh, a bit too much fire getting into one place and uh, exploded all at once. Uh, luckily, it was contained and no one was hurt in this case. And uh, in that little bit of talking, I've now managed to find my chemistry of fireworks colours. Uh, so what have we got here? Well, we've got the range of colours from the whole... Um, whole gamut of the rainbow. So red is produced by strontium salts, uh, strontium metal. Orange comes from calcium salts. Yellow, as I said earlier, comes from sodium salts. Green is barium salts. Uh, blue is copper salts. And purple, well, purple, they actually combine copper and strontium, so blue and red, uh, to make purple. That makes sense to me. And silver we get from white hot magnesium and aluminium which we were talking about earlier for that crackling sound. And uh, white is, uh, again, magnesium, aluminium, titanium in there. So they're the uh, big um, producers of, uh, of colour in our fireworks there, those metal salt compounds that create it. So yeah, a bit of science for you to hopefully make you appreciate uh, Skyfire that happened last night even more. That basically brings us to an end for our science today here on Fuzzy Logic. Thanks very much for tuning in, folks. I hope you enjoyed this uh, special St. Patrick's Day edition of Fuzzy Logic as we explored some Irish scientists and the science of the colour green too. If uh, you did enjoy today's show, we do podcast as much as we can, uh, and that podcast can be found at fuzzylogic on 2xx.podbean.com, or you can also download it from iTunes. Just type in Fuzzy Logic and look for our Autumn Leaf logo, and you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook too. But uh, that wraps it up for your science on a Sunday. My name's Broderick. It's been a pleasure having you with us here listening to Fuzzy Logic.